we present Monkey. An abridged translation of the great Chinese classic Journey to the West, written by Wu Chung-un, translated by Arthur Whaley, and narrated by Bob Jones. Chapter 22 Monkey and the other two disciples lowered the clouds on which they rode and returned to court, where they received the humble thanks of the king, his ministers, heir and consort, and all the officers. Monkey told them how Manjushri had reclaimed the fiend, at which they prostrated themselves with extreme awe and reverence. In the midst of these congratulations and rejoicings, a eunuch suddenly arrived saying, My lord and master, four more priests have arrived. Brother, said Pigsy in consternation, what if it should turn out that the fiend, having disguised himself as Manjushri and taken us all in, has now turned himself into a priest in the hope of confounding us? Impossible, said Monkey, and he ordered them to be shown in. The officers of the court sent word that they were to be admitted, and when they appeared, Monkey saw at once that they were priests from the Treasure Wood Temple, bringing the crown, belt, cloak and upturned shoes of the king. Just at the right moment, said Monkey, delighted. He then called to the porter to come forward, took off his head wrap and put on the crown, took off his cloth coat and put on the royal robe, undid the sash and girded him with the belt of jades, slipped off his priest's sandals and put on the upturned shoes. Then he told the prince to bring out the white jade tablet and put it in the king's hand, bidding him mount the dais and proclaim his sovereignty in accordance with the old saying, A court must not, even for a day, be without a sovereign. But the king was very loath to sit upon the throne, and, weeping bitterly, he knelt on the centre of the steps, saying, I was dead for three years, and having now, by your doing, been brought back to life, how can I dare proclaim myself your sovereign? It would be better that one of you priests should be king, and that I should take my wife and child and live like a commoner outside the walls of the city. Tripitaka, of course, would not accept, as his heart was set upon going to worship the Buddha and get scriptures. The king then asked Monkey. Gentlemen, said Monkey, laughing, I will not deceive you. If I had wanted to be an emperor, I could have had the throne in any of the ten thousand lands and nine continents under heaven. But I have got used to being a priest and leading a lazy, comfortable existence. An emperor has to wear his hair long, at nightfall he must not doze, at the fifth drum he must be awake. Each time there is news from the frontier, his heart jumps. When there are calamities and disasters, he is plunged in sorrow and despair. 
I should never get used to it. You go back to your job as emperor, and let me go back to mine as priest, doing my deeds and going upon my way. Seeing that it was useless to refuse, the king at last mounted the dais, turned towards his subjects and proclaimed his sovereignty, announcing a great amnesty throughout his realm. He loaded the priests from the Treasurewood Temple with presents and sent them home. Then he opened the eastern upper room and held a banquet for Tripitaka. He also sent for a painter to make portraits of the blessed countenances of Tripitaka and his disciples, which were to be hung in the Palace of Golden Bells and reverenced as objects of worship. Having put the king upon his throne, Tripitaka and his disciples were anxious to start out again as soon as possible. The king, his ladies, the prince, and all the ministers pressed upon them all their heirlooms of the kingdom, and gold, silver, silks, and satins to show their deep gratitude. But Tripitaka would not accept so much as a split hair, and when their passports had been put in order, he urged Monkey and the rest to get the horse saddled so that they might start at once. The king, very loath to part with them, ordered his state coach to be got ready and made Tripitaka ride in it. It was drawn by officers, civil and military, while the prince and ladies of the court pushed at the sides till they were beyond the walls of the town. Here Tripitaka alighted and took leave of them all. Master, said the king, on your way back from India, when you pass this way, you must certainly visit me. I shall obey your command, said Tripitaka. Then, with his eyes full of tears, the king, accompanied by all his ministers, returned to the palace. The master and his three disciples travelled westward, going slowly the better to enjoy the scenery, when suddenly they heard what sounded like the hubbub of a hundred thousand voices. <coughs> Tripitaka, much alarmed, reined in his horse, and turning to Monkey said, Where does that strange noise come from? It sounds to me like a landslide, broke in Pigsy. I should say it is a thunderstorm, said Sandy. I'm certain it is men shouting and horses neighing, said Tripitaka. You're all wrong, laughed Monkey. Wait while I go and have a look. Dear Monkey, he gave himself a shake, sprang straight up into the clouds and looked down. Below him he saw a moated city. The vapours that surrounded it were all of good omen. None were baleful. Monkey thought to himself, Where can all that noise come from? I see no banners or halberds, no artillery, yet certainly there is a din of horses and men. 
While he was debating with himself, his eye fell upon a tall sandy cliff outside the city, near which were gathered together a great crowd of Buddhist priests dragging a cart, and to give themselves courage for the task, each time they hauled, they cried out all together the name of the Bodhisattva of Power. This was the noise that had alarmed Tripitaka. Lowering his cloud, Monkey saw that the cart was loaded with bricks, tiles, timber, earth clods, and the like. The cliff was almost perpendicular, but a narrow path ran up between steep walls. How they were going to get the cart up this path defied imagination. It was a hot day, but they were all still clad in full monastic robes. Seeing them in this plight, Monkey could think of no better explanation than they were building a temple, and unable to obtain laborers because the harvest was in process, they had found nothing for it but to take on the work themselves. While he was thus speculating, the gates of the city opened and two young Taoists came out. No sooner did the Buddhists see them than, in evident agony of apprehension, they redoubled their efforts, tugging madly at the cart. Aha! said Monkey to himself. Now all is plain. The priests are afraid of those Taoists. I have heard it said that on the way to the west there is a place where Taoists are in power, and Buddhism has been destroyed. This must be the place that was meant. However, if I go back at once and tell the master, he will say this is all mere guesswork and scold me for not bringing back a trustworthy report. I will go down and find out all about it before I speak to the master." He gave himself a shake and changed into the guise of a wandering Taoist magician. On his left arm he carried a hamper, and in his right a tambourine, and singing Taoist songs as he went, he strolled towards the two Taoists. Masters, I salute you most humbly, he said, bowing. Where do you come from? they asked. Your disciple, said Monkey, wanders through the world like a cloud. The four corners of the earth are his home. His purpose in coming here is to collect subscriptions for works of piety. In what quarters of this city of yours is the way loved? In what streets are the worthy esteemed? for I feel like going and begging a little supper. Sir, said the two Taoists, we are surprised to hear you speak so humbly. What do you mean by humbly? asked Monkey. You spoke of begging for your supper, they said. Is not that a humble way of talking? That is how those who have left the world must get their bread, said Monkey, for they have no money to buy it with. It is clear, they said, smiling, that you have no knowledge of how things stand in these parts. In this city not only do all the officials and officers love the way, and all rich merchants and tradesmen esteem its adepts, 
so that there is not a man or woman, young or old, who does not bow down before us and ask to be allowed to supply our needs, that would be a small thing hardly worth mentioning. What is singular in this country is that the king himself is a devout supporter of Taoism. I am young, said Monkey, and come from far away. It is natural that I should know nothing of this. I must trouble you to tell me the name of this country, and how it comes about that the king is such a lover of the way, that I may know just how things stand with my fellow Taoists in this country. This country, they said, is called Cart Slow, and the king is our kinsman. He is, I suppose, a Taoist priest who became king, said Monkey. No, they said. Twenty years ago there was a famine here. The whole court and all the people purified themselves and prayed fervently for rain. Their prayers were not answered, but just when all seemed lost, three immortals suddenly came from the sky and saved us. Today they are our masters and we are their disciples. What are their names? asked Monkey. Their leader, said the Taoists, is called the Tiger Strength Immortal, and the two others are called Deer Strength Immortal and Ram Strength Immortal. And what powers of magic have they? asked Monkey. They can summon the wind or bring rain, said the Taoists, by a mere turn of the hand. They can point at water and it becomes oil, prick stones and they become gold, as easily as one turns in bed. Small wonder that the king and his ministers fell down before them and are eager to count us Taoists as their kin. Your king is a lucky man, said Monkey, and if your masters have such arts, there must be few who would be sorry to claim kinship with them. Indeed, if it isn't making too bold, I should take it as a great kindness if I might be allowed to meet them for a moment myself. There is no difficulty about that, they said. We too are the most favoured and trusted of all their disciples. Moreover, such is their love of Taoism that they have only to hear the word mentioned and they immediately come out, overflowing with welcome. If we were to introduce you, the thing would be as easy as blowing ashes from a tray. Bravo, cried Monkey. Let us go to them at once. You must wait a few minutes, they said. We have some business to attend to. I don't quite understand, said Monkey. Those who have left the world are bound by no ties. How can you speak of having business to conduct? Those people over there, they said, pointing to the priests by the cliff, are working for us. We have to go and check them off by the list, in case some should be playing truant. You must be mistaken, said Monkey. Those are Buddhists, but they are priests, just as we are. What right have we to set them to work or check them off on a list? You don't understand, said the Taoists. At the time of the great drought, the Buddhists prayed to Buddha and the Taoists to the Pole Star. 
The Buddhists had no success at all. In vain they prayed, in vain they recited their scriptures, but in the nick of time our masters appeared, and at once rain fell and the suppliant crowds were saved. Our masters then demanded that, as the Buddhists had proved themselves to be impostors, their temples and images should be destroyed, and their passports taken away from them, so that they might not flee to their homes. They were then given to us, to work for us as slaves. It is they who light our fires, they who sweep our floors, they who are the porters at our gate. At the back of our temple there is a building which is not yet finished, so we set them to bring tiles and bricks and logs up to the cliff. It was feared they might be shirking their work or not pulling hard enough at the cart, so we too were sent to see what was happening. This is all most unfortunate, said Monkey, <laughs> bursting into tears. <laughs> it is quite impossible for me to meet your masters. How is that? they asked. I must tell you, said Monkey, that the purpose of my wanderings is in part to discover a lost relation. What relation? they asked. I have an uncle, said Monkey, who when he was young became a Buddhist priest. During the famine he went to distant parts to beg alms and has not been seen since. It is very possible that he is detained here and cannot get home. I cannot go with you to the city till I have found out whether he is here. That can easily be done, they said. We'll sit here and you can go to the cliff and do our business for us. There are five hundred names on the list. You have only to check over the list and see that they are all there. If you find your uncle among them, in consideration of the fact that you are a Taoist yourself, we shall gladly release him. Then we would take you to the city. Monkey thanked them heartily and set out towards the cliff, beating his drum as he went. When he reached them, the priests flung themselves to their knees and, beating their heads upon the ground, cried out, Spare us, father! There is not one among us that has been idle, nor of all the five hundred is there any that has absented himself or failed to haul the cart. Aha! thought Monkey to himself. These priests are clearly used to being roughly handled. If they cringe like this to me, I think they must pretty well die of fright when their real masters go near them. He motioned to them to rise, saying, You have nothing to be afraid of. I am not here to see that you do your work. I have come to look for a lost kinsman. On hearing this, they all pressed round, each stretching out his head with upturned face, hoping that he might be claimed as kin. Which of us is it? they asked. After having looked attentively at each of them, Monkey burst out laughing. It seems you have not found your relative, they said. Why then are you laughing? I am laughing, said Monkey, to think what a strange notion you have of the duties of your order. Having been born under an unlucky star, you quarrelled with your parents or some such thing, and were disowned by them and sent to be priests. One would have thought that you would then at least have devoted yourselves to reading the scriptures and other holy works. 
How is it that instead I find you hiring yourselves out to Taoists and working as their servants? Why have you come to mock at us, they cried, but you are evidently a stranger and perhaps do not know of our plight. That is the case, said Monkey. The king of this country, they said, has turned his heart away from the true law and gives his favour to these heretical masters and their crew. How came that about? asked Monkey. The three immortals, they said, having obtained the king's confidence by bringing rain, persuaded him to destroy us. All our temples were pulled down, our passports taken away, so that we could not return to our homes, nor were we allowed to labour for our own support, but were given over to the immortals as their drudges and bondsmen. The moment any Taoist itinerant magic-maker sets foot in the town, he is sent for by the king and loaded with presents, whereas if a Buddhist comes, whether from afar or near, he is seized and given to the immortals as a labourer. Those Taoists, said Monkey, must certainly possess more than the common arts, or they would never have found their way to the king's heart. After all, summoning the wind and bringing rain are common trumpery practices, such as would not move a monarch's heart. True enough, they said. These immortals can also make the philosopher's stone go into trances, turn water into oil, and stones into gold. And now they have built a temple dedicated to the Taoist trinity, where all day and all night they read scriptures and perform rites to preserve the king's youth, and this, no doubt, gratifies his majesty. Things being as they are, said Monkey, I can't imagine why you do not simply run away. Father, they said, how can we run away? The immortals have persuaded the king to have portraits of us painted, which are hung up in every part of the land. There is not a hamlet in the whole kingdom that has not got copies of these pictures inscribed at the top in the king's own hand. Any official who catches a Buddhist priest is at once promoted three stages, and a private person is given a reward of fifty weights of silver. We should never succeed in escaping. Why, not to speak of priests, anyone with his hair cut a bit short or a little thin on top would as likely as not be grabbed. The whole land swarms with police and detectives, Judge for yourself what chance anyone would have of getting clear. We have no choice but to stay here and bear our sufferings. I wonder you are alive to tell the tale, said Monkey. Father, they cried, many have died. The priests who belong to this place, together with those who were arrested in various parts of the kingdom, were about two thousand in all. Of these, some six or seven hundred died of exhaustion, of exposure to heat and cold, or through lack of food, and seven or eight hundred took their own lives. The five hundred whom you see here are those who failed to die. What do you mean by failed to die? asked Monkey. The rope broke, they said, or the blade was blunt, or the poison did not work or the backwash carried them to the surface of the water, and they did not drown. 
Lucky fellows, said Monkey. Heaven has blessed you with long life. Say rather, cursed us with eternal torment, they cried. What do you suppose they give us to feed on? Water that the cheapest rice has been cooked in three times a day. And where do we sleep? Here, in the open, at the foot of this cliff. But the moment we close our eyes, spirits come to keep watch over us. Quite so, said Monkey. You have nightmares as a result of all your sufferings. That is not so at all, they said. The six guardians and the defenders of religion come to watch over us. And if any of us is at the point of death, they revive him. More fools they, said Monkey. They ought to let you die and go to heaven as quickly as possible. They tell us in our dreams, the Buddhists said, that we must hold out a little longer, despite our torments, for soon, they said, a pilgrim will come, who is on his way to India to get scriptures. With him is a disciple named the great sage, equal of heaven, who has great magic powers, which he uses to right the wrongs of the oppressed. He will destroy the Taoists and bring the followers of Zen once more into respect. Monkey smiled to himself. That really makes me feel quite important, he said to himself. Fancy having spirits announcing one's arrival beforehand. He turned his heel on them and, beating his drum, strode on towards the city gate. Did you find your kinsmen? the two Taoists asked. They are all my kinsmen, said Monkey. What? The whole five hundred? they asked. Two hundred on my father's side, two hundred on my mother's, and the rest are my bond brothers, said Monkey. If you will release the whole lot of them, I'll go back with you. You must be mad, they said. These Buddhists were given to us by the king to be our slaves. We might, to oblige you, release one or two of them, but we should have to manage it by first sending in a report that they were ill, and then another that they had died. We can't suddenly release the whole gang. These things are looked into. Why, the king himself might take it into his head to come and see how the work is going. So, you won't let them go, cried Monkey. Very well, then. And taking his cudgel from behind his ear, he rushed at them and gave them each such a blow upon the head that their brains gushed out and they fell dead where they had stood. Oh, what have you done? cried the Buddhists, leaving their carts and rushing up to Monkey in utter consternation. You have killed the king's favourites. How so? said Monkey. These Taoists, they said, are always at the king's side, and in the presence of all the court he humbles himself before them. The two whom you have slain were sent to supervise our work. It will at once be said that it was we who killed him. You must come with us to the city immediately and confess your crime. Enough of all this noise, said Monkey. I'm not the mendicant that I appear. It is I who am your saviour. You, a murderer, they cried, who have added immeasurably to our burdens by your deed of violence. You, our saviour? 
I am the great sage of whom you spoke, said Monkey, and have come to rescue you. It is not true, they said. We should recognize him. You have never seen him, said Monkey. How could you recognize him? An old man, they said, often came to us in our dreams, telling us that he was the spirit of the planet Venus. He gave us such a complete description of the great sage that we could not fail to recognize him. Flat forehead, bright steely eyes, a round head, hairy cheeks and no chin. The old scamp, said Monkey, secretly flattered that spirits should have prepared the way for him. You are perfectly right, he said suddenly. I am not the Monkey Sage. I am only one of his disciples. There goes Monkey. The Buddhists turned in the direction to which he pointed, and while their backs were turned, Monkey resumed his true form. Turning round, they at once recognised him, and flinging themselves upon their knees. Father, they cried, forgive us that we did not know you in your disguise. We beg of you to come with us at once to the city, put down the impostors, and give the right its due. Follow me, cried Monkey, and they pressed about him on either side. They came first to the cliff where Monkey, using his magic power, hauled the carts to the top and tilted them over the edge, so that they crashed at the bottom into a thousand pieces. Now, go your ways, he said to the Buddhists, and let not one of you show that he has any connection with me. Tomorrow I will go to the king and compass the Taoists' undoing. Father, they said, we dare not stir from here, or the magistrates will lay hands on us again, and we shall have been ransomed only to fall into fresh trouble. I will give you a magic that will keep you safe, said Monkey. Dear Monkey, he plucked out a handful of his hairs, chewed them into small pieces, and gave a piece to each Buddhist, saying, Put it under the nail of your thumb and clench your fist. Then you can go where you will, and no one will dare touch you. You have only to press your thumb into the palm of your hand and cry, Great sage, I will come at once to help you. But father, they said, suppose we are a long way off, and you could not hear us, what then? That is all right, said Monkey. If I were ten thousand leagues away, it would make no difference, you would still come to no harm. Some of the bolder among them experimented, murmuring, Great sage, while they pressed their thumbs. At once a thunder god, armed with an iron cudgel, hovered before the face of each, ready to protect him against a whole army of attackers. Father, a marvellous manifestation, they cried. When the danger is past, said Monkey, you have only to cry, Quiet! and the apparition will vanish. And sure enough, when they cried quiet, the thunder gods changed back into hares and returned to their place under the thumbnail. The Buddhists now began to disperse. Don't go too far away, cried Monkey. Look out for news of me in the city, and as soon as a summons to Buddhists is sent out, come and give me back my hares. Meanwhile, Tripitaka, 
waiting at the roadside, was wondering what had become of Monkey. At last he ordered Pigsy to lead the horse and was just setting out towards the west when they met a number of Buddhist priests scattering in every direction. Presently, near the city gates, they met Monkey himself, still accompanied by a few priests who had stayed behind. Monkey, cried Tripitaka, I sent you to discover the cause of that strange noise. Why were you so long about it? Monkey brought the priests to Tripitaka and made them do reverence to him. Then he told what had happened. And what am I to do? asked Tripitaka. Our temple, the priest said, has not been destroyed. That is because it contains an image of the king's ancestor, having been built by his order. We invite you to come and rest there till the great sage has done his work. The sun was setting as they crossed the drawbridge and went through the triple gates. Seeing that Tripitaka was accompanied by Buddhist priests, the people in the street all drew away from him. When they reached the temple, Tripitaka took out his cassock and bowed before the golden body of Buddha. An old priest who looked after the building was called out, and on seeing Monkey he cried, So you have come here, father. Whom do you take me for? said Monkey. I know that you are the great sage equal of heaven, he said. Again and again I have dreamed of you. The spirit of the planet Venus came to me in my sleep and described you to me, telling me you would soon come and save our lives. It is as well you have come now, for if you had waited another day, we should have been ghosts, not living men. Get up, get up, said Monkey. Tomorrow all will be set right. They then had supper and went to bed. But the second watch came, and still Monkey could not sleep, so full was his head of tomorrow's plans. Somewhere nearby he heard the sound of conches, and dressing quietly he leapt into the air and looked down. To the south he saw a flare of lanterns and torches. Lowering his cloud, he looked more closely and saw that the Taoists in their great temple were celebrating a service of supplication to the Pole Star. In front of the gate was an inscription made of letters embroidered in yellow silk. Wind and rain in due season, for our Lord, ten thousand years of happy rain. Conspicuous were three venerable Taoists in full sacramental robes, whom Monkey took to be the tiger strength, deer strength and ram strength immortals. Before them was ranged a crowd of some 800 worshippers, beating drums and gongs, offering incense and confessing their sins. I would go down and mingle with the crowd, said Monkey to himself, but a single strand does not make a thread, nor can one hand clap. I will go and get Pigsy and Sandy to come and share the fun. He found the two sleeping huddled together. Why aren't you asleep? Sandy asked when Monkey woke him. Get up and come with me, said Monkey. We're all going to have a treat. Who wants a treat in the middle of the night, said Sandy, when one's mouth is dry and one's eyes won't stay open? 
The Taoists are celebrating a mass in their great temple, said Monkey, and the whole place is littered with offerings. There are dumplings that must weigh a quart, and cakes weighing fifty pounds, and all kinds of dainties and fruits. Come and enjoy yourself. Pigsy, hearing in his sleep something about things to eat, at once woke with a start. <coughs> Brother, you're not going to leave me out of it, he cried. If you like the idea of something to eat, said Monkey, don't make a fuss and wake up the master, but both of you come quickly with me. They dressed quickly and followed Monkey. As soon as they came into the light of the torches, Pigsy wanted to rush in and get to work. There's no hurry, said Monkey. Wait till the congregation disperses, then we'll go in and set to. But they're praying for all they're worth, said Pigsy. They have evidently no idea of dispersing. I'll see to that, said Monkey, and reciting a spell, he drew a magic diagram on the ground. Then, standing upon it, he blew with all his might. At once, a great wind rose, which blew down on the flower vases and lampstands, and smashed the ex-votos hanging on the walls. The whole place was suddenly in darkness. The Taoists were frightened out of their wits. I must ask the congregation to disperse, said the tiger strength immortal. The wind will no doubt subside, and tomorrow morning we will recite a few more scriptures so that the prescribed number may be reached. As soon as the place was empty, the three of them slipped in, and that fool Pigsy began to stuff himself with victuals. Monkey gave him a sharp rap over the knuckles. Pigsy drew back his hand and retreated, saying, Wait a bit, I've hardly had time to get my tongue round the things, and he begins hitting me. Mind your manners, said Monkey. Let's sit down and enjoy ourselves decently. I like that, said Pigsy. If we're to sit down and behave ourselves decently when we are stealing a meal, what, pray, should we do if we were invited? What are those bodhisattvas up there? asked Monkey. If you don't recognise the Taoist trinity, said Pigsy, what deities would you recognise, I wonder? What are they called? asked Monkey. The one in the middle, said Pigsy, is the great primordial. The one on the left is the Lord of the Sacred Treasure, and the one on the right is Lao Tzu. Let's take their places, said Monkey. Then we can eat decently and comfortably. The smell of the offerings made Pigsy in a great hurry to begin eating, and scrambling up onto the altar, he knocked down the figure of Lao Tzu with a thrust of his snout, saying, You've sat there long enough, old fellow. Now it's Pig's turn. Monkey, meanwhile, took the seat of the great primordial, and Sandy that of the lord of the sacred treasure, pushing the images out of the way. As soon as he was seated, Pigsy snatched at a big dumpling and began to gobble it down. Not so fast, cried Monkey. Surely, brother, said Pigsy, now that we've taken our places, it's time to begin. We mustn't give ourselves away just for the sake of a small thing like a bite of food, 
If we leave these images lying there on the floor, some Taoist monk may come along at any minute to clean the place up and trip over them. Then he'll know at once that there is something wrong. We had better put them away somewhere. I don't know my way about here, said Pigsy. There may be a door somewhere, but I shouldn't find it in the dark. Where am I to put these images? I noticed a small door on the right as we came in, said Monkey. Judging from the smell that came from it, I should think it must be a place of metabolic transmigration. You had better take them there. That fool Pigsy was uncommonly strong. He hoisted the three images onto his back and carried them off. When he reached the door, he kicked it open, and sure enough, it was a privy. That chap monkey finds some wonderful expressions, he said laughing. He contrives to find a grand Taoist title even for a closet. Before depositing them, he addressed the images as follows. Blessed ones, having come a long way, we were hungry and decided to help ourselves to some of your offerings. Finding nowhere comfortable to sit, we have ventured to borrow your altar. You have sat there for a very long time, and now, for a change, you are going to be put in the privy. You have always had more than your share of good things, and it won't do you any harm to put up with a little stink and muck. So saying, he pitched them in. There was a splash, and, not retreating quickly enough, he found that his coat was in a filthy state. Have you disposed of them successfully? asked Monkey. I've disposed of them all right, said Pigsy, but I have splashed myself and my coat is all filthy. If you notice a queer smell, you'll know what it is. That's all right for the moment. Come and enjoy yourself, said Monkey. But you'll have to clean yourself up a bit before you go out into the street. That fool Pigsy then took Lao Tzu's seat and began to help himself to the offerings. Dumplings, pasties, rice balls, cakes. One after another he gobbled them down. Monkey never cared much for cooked food and only ate a few fruits, just to keep the others in countenance. The offerings vanished swiftly as a cloud swept away by a hurricane, and when there was nothing left to eat, instead of starting on their way, they fell to talking and joking while they digested their food. Who would have thought of it? There was a little Taoist who suddenly woke up and remembered that he had left his handbell in the temple. If I lose it, he said to himself, I shall get into trouble with the master tomorrow. So he said to his bedfellow, You go on sleeping. I must go and look for my bell. He did not put on his lower garments, but just threw his coat over his shoulders and rushed to the temple. After fumbling about for some time, he succeeded in finding it, and was just turning to go when he heard a sound of breathing. Very much alarmed, he ran towards the door, and in his hurry slipped on a lychee seed and fell with a bang, smashing his bell into a thousand pieces. Pigsy could not stop himself from breaking into loud guffaws of laughter, which frightened the little Taoist out of his wits. Stumbling at every step, he dragged himself back to the sleeping quarters, and, banging on his master's door, he cried, 
something terrible has happened. The three immortals were not asleep, and, coming to the door, they asked what was the matter. I forgot my bell, he said, trembling from head to foot, and when I went to the temple to look for it, I suddenly heard someone laughing. I nearly died of fright. The immortals called for lights, and startled Taoists came scrambling out of their cells, carrying lanterns and torches. They all went off to the temple to see what evil spirit had taken possession there. If you are not sure what came of it, you must listen to what is told in the next chapter. been listening to Monkey, an abridged translation of the great Chinese classic Journey to the West, written by Wu Cheng An, translated by Arthur Whaley, and narrated by Bob Jones. <laughs>